Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. We're happy to welcome back to the podcast Mike from the Dana Buckler Show. Mike, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me back on, guys. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Lots of fun. And we're here to talk about Reign of Fire, starring Christian Bale, Matthew McConaughey, Isabella Skrupko, Alice Krieg, and Gerard Butler. Directed by Rob Bowman. Released in 2002 on a $60 million budget. Grossed $82.2 million at the box office. So not, uh, you know, a massive hit, but made some money. Mike, this was all your idea, though, man. So uh, please do tell. So, a couple of reasons. One, you know, not to date this podcast, but we're recording it in July of 2020. And uh, this movie came out in on July 12th of 2002. And for those who've seen the movie, the movie takes place in 2020. So everybody kind of, it kind of went viral earlier this month of everybody sort of remembering that Reign of Fire existed because we're supposed to be fighting dragons, not pandemics right now. <laughs> and uh, so that got me to watch it because I probably hadn't watched it for 10 years at least. So it got me to watch it again and uh, realized one, I forgot it was directed by my boy Rob Bowman, who directed Airborne, one of my all-time favorite movies. And two, that this is a movie you guys hadn't covered, and this just seems like a film strip podcast <laughs> movie. Uh, so I, I, I asked you guys if you'd done it. You said no, and here we are. I, I look, that's as good a reason as any, so, as far as I'm concerned. I, I remember getting that message from you on Twitter, and it was like, how have y'all not done Reign of Fire? And I said, I, I don't know, honestly. I, I don't know how we've missed it. Uh, but I will tell that uh, my memories of this are a little different, maybe, than what you'd expect. But I want to hear Ron's first, because I, I think he's got a few. I actually don't remember having ever seen this movie all the way through. I think it's one of those movies I watched, like, halfway on uh, you know various uh, basic cable channels HBO or Showtime whichever one showed it pretty regularly uh, back in the day but I really don't know I ever sat down and watched the whole thing like at once I think it was always like watch 45 minutes here watch till the big dragon attack in the beginning uh, you know watch Matthew McConaughey walking around in a sleeveless bomber jacket for some reason <laughs> and, and but uh, so not my first time seeing it, not my first time being made aware of it, but probably my first time watching it all from start to finish. I remember renting this when it came out on video. I missed it in theaters because 2002, I was in the middle of a move and I'd started a new job and I just didn't really have a lot of money or anything. So I didn't go to the theater that much, but I remember renting this when it came out on DVD and in my little small apartment in Alabama, I was living in at the time. And I remember watching it and falling asleep somewhere around the 25 minute mark. Like right after we get to the adults, and I think they're reenacting Empire Strikes Back. But I woke up for the last 12 minutes, and I remember feeling like I hadn't missed anything. Like I kind of had it at that point. I knew Matthew McConaughey was in it. I missed his character entrance, but I I just didn't remember it at all. And then watching it again for this review, I realized at some point in between 2002 and now, I had bothered to watch it all again. Uh, But it had been a long time. I mean, it had definitely been one that I, I think I don't know, it just kind of flew under the radar for me. And what's amazing about this is catching these people at this point in their careers, particularly Christian Bale and Gerard Butler, who you know went on to do some mega franchise stuff. You know, this is pre-Batman Bale. This is before 300 and all of the Something Has Fallen series that Butler does. Um and I, you know, I wouldn't have known. I, I mean, I knew Matthew McConaughey from a lot of his stuff, but I wasn't really following him. This feels like some of his 
you know, Kate Hudson-ish rom-com phase and all that that he was trying to do. And then he would do one of these kind of things, too. Um, even though, I I mean, for me, man, I, I watch it. Whenever he plays these intense characters, I'm like, you're just doing your Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing again, man. Like, it's, it's really what it felt like. So this was fun to come back to, um, particularly because the thing that I remembered about the movie having seen it way back then and then coming to do it this time was that the effects really did look good and that I thought they held up. And then watching it for this time kind of felt the same way too. It will be fun to get into as we talk about it, but that's one of the things about this movie that I think that maybe gives it a little bit of legs to be 18 years old and you can still look at it and not go, Oh, I see all of the seams like, Go back and watch another movie that's 18 years old that's got a lot of effects in it right now, guys. You're, you're going to see it. You can tell it. Well, I think that's part of the nice thing is, you know, it, it's surprisingly, for what was kind of a big summer blockbuster, and I actually did see this opening weekend in the theaters, it's it's a relatively modest movie. Um, you know, Bowman kind of specialized in he's a tv guy first and foremost and so he kind of specialized in maximizing budgets and working efficiently um i only say specialized because after he did electra he's in movie director jail and so we (laughs) haven't had a movie from him since 2005 but um you know he knows how to keep the focus kind of modest for a movie that's about fighting dragons that have brought about the apocalypse. It's really kind of narrowly focused, and I think that allows them to maximize the special effects that some other movies, uh, maybe with a little grander ambition, might not be able to pull off, and therefore don't hold up as well. Yeah, I think part of it is you you have to want to follow the people here. And the smart move was to keep the cast relatively small. I mean, there's only like six of them in the opening credits, and then it's a bunch of you know, extras really along with, you know, some, they got some stunt jumpers uh, to, to be a part, which I got a kick out of in the credits that the uh, half of his team are all like stunt drivers and stuff like that, which I, you know, good for those guys to get the credit for it. Uh, but yeah, it, it, to make it a small thing and localize, it gives this sort of grand story, a, a focal point that makes it easy to follow for an audience, I think. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into it as we get into it, but I think the smartest thing they figured out was that it didn't matter how old he was. Christian Bale could play a lot of things and can have a lot of range, uh, even in B movie monster territory, you know, he can do a lot of cool stuff. And so we'll, we'll talk about it as we get into it, but yeah, I, it's amazing how much this one's held up. Ron, you got thoughts on that? Well, uh, one of the, f- Funny things to me is watch this, the dragon in this movie, and then watch season eight of Game of Thrones. And I guarantee you they spent more money on season eight of Game of Thrones, and the dragons look worse than these dragons. <laughs> they should have just, like, copied and pasted this dragon from this movie and made it, you know, uh, Rhaegal or one of the, uh, I can't even remember the Drogon. Yeah, they should have <laughs> made it Drogon and just had that, just like CGI out of little Daenerys Targaryen on top of it. Also, oh, no. also, the ice the ice dragon's kind of cool though. I I I uh, always hold that. Yeah, but if you took this uh, any one of these dragons here, uh, especially the ones with the more tattered looking wings that you see, like the first dragon that they kill, if you just kind of give that one a nice blue shade, uh, <laughs> you've got a perfectly good ice dragon, and you've got mm-hmm. uh, Jeffrey Baratheon's in this movie somewhere. It's one of the children. Yes, I saw those eyes sitting in the audience, and I was like, I know that face. And then IMDb did not disappoint. I was like, oh, before he was the most hated character in television modern history, he was a cute kid. <laughs> well, speaking of cute kids, Jay, there are a lot of cute kids in this movie. So won't you tell us just how these cute kids tie back into a movie about uh, the dragon-based apocalypse? Yeah, here's a plot summary that won't even talk about any of the kids. So 12-year-old Quinn Abercrombie admires his engineer mother and often joins her as she builds tunnels underneath London. However, her crew is uncovered in an enormous fire-breathing dragon from a centuries-long hibernation. After she's killed and Quinn escapes, we learn that dragons have laid waste to the world in an awesome montage of Time magazine covers. And living off the ash of their destruction creates, the dragons have scattered the remaining population into hiding. 20 years later, Quinn, along with his friend Creedy, lead and protect a small band of people desperate to eke out enough of a life just to survive. Teaching children and everyone the way to survive is to run from these beasts, not to fight them. Into their community comes a hothead American soldier, Van Zandt, 
played by Matthew McConaughey, with his band of fighters, including helicopter pilot Alex, claiming to have a surefire way to defeat the dragons, although it seems like suicide every time they try it. Quinn and company assist, but think the tactics are too risky, causing a great deal of tension between the men, and they even get into a good little fist fight. Van Zandt recruits some of Quinn's people to go with him on a run to take out what he considers the key to victory. He theorizes, and Quinn even agrees, only one male dragon can fertilize thousands of female eggs, meaning that most of the dragon population is female and will die out if the male is killed. The mission goes horribly awry the male dragon wipes out everyone but Van Zandt and Alex, and then flies to the castle, killing many of the colony, including Creedy. At this, Quinn decides to join Van Zandt and Alex and in a final attempt to take out the male dragon. In the fight, Van Zandt is killed, but not before partially injuring the beast, and Alex and Quinn team up to take out the dragon once and for all before returning to the colony, which appears to finally be living in peace and talking to people speaking French as the movie ends. That's about as tight a plot summary as I can give it. It's a pretty simple movie, and like we've talked about in the intro, I think that's one of the smart things about this movie is it doesn't ask us to know a hundred people's names and we don't need a map or anything really. And uh, it, it kicks us off right in the prologue of the story. And I don't know, I, I kind of dug this whole little 10 minute thing that they bother to spend time on here of setting up Quinn and his mother and the way the dragons reappear into society. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the opening is, is really effective here. Um, first of all, it's always nice to see Alice Creed in any, in anything. Um, <clears throat> But I think it's pretty effective, and it also gives us, again, a, you know, it's kind of oddly coincidental as far as movies go that Quinn's the one that technically awakens the dragon. But on the flip side, it also gives us investment into Quinn's story and and why he is so... You know, he's kind of a dick for a lot of this movie because he's so terrified of the dragons and has just assumed that this is the world. And it kind of makes sense because, well, he kind of caused this problem. So, you know, again, from a storytelling efficiency standpoint, I think it's really effective. You can nitpick it that it's ridiculously coincidental. But I think, again, also that's part of this movie's modest charms is it it wants to be an efficient story. I mean, it, it moves, you know, say what you will about the movie, but it doesn't waste a ton of time. Is it just me or was Alex Creed like fifth build in this and she's in the movie for like two minutes? Yeah, that must have been part of the contract. That's what I thought. I was like, well, you know, when, when you've been nominated for Academy Awards and done all that, I guess you can demand that because she's the last thing on the screen before we go to casting by, you know, or whatever. And I thought, well, OK. So that's why I wrote her name down and put it in the intro. And then I was like, oh, you're dead in the first bit. OK, well, fine. That, that, it's actually kind of neat, though, the way it all works, because the excavation crew has found a great void. And what they've done is they've found where the dragon's been sleeping underneath London for hundreds of thousands of years or however long it's supposed to be. And Gwen goes down there, of course, because he's the kind of boy that gets to run around his mom's construction sites and stuff like that, which is you know fun. And he, he pets the thing basically to wake it up. But the one thing they drop from this that I always wish they had somehow tied back into it later on was when the dragon spits in his eyes and his mom's having to wash it out and do the eye wash out. There's like no lasting effect of that on him. Like his eyesight doesn't suck later or he doesn't have special dragon vision or some shit like they, they don't do anything with that. And I was like, oh, man, you know, another movie would have given him like some sort of superpower with this or some way to I don't know talk to the dragons or something but no they just kind of drop it yeah he was uh, bitten by a radioactive Alice Creek <laughs> and gets the powers of the Borg <laughs> it does kind of come back if you use a little bit of fridge logic because it explains how Quinn knows that the way the dragons breathe fire is they've got the two glands that in it when they merge, it's kind of like napalm, essentially. When they merge, it turns into fire. And Quinn knows that because he got a face full of one half of it, but didn't get any of the other, which is why he's still alive. Um, so, it, I mean, if you fridge logic it a little bit, you can kind of get why it's there. But I admit, Dragon Vision would have been cool as hell. Yeah, especially since they go to it, especially at different times in the movie. It's like, that would have been neat if just that last dragon in the last fight had, I don't know, caused them to be in some sort of way where they couldn't really see what was going on. But he could because he had dragon vision or some some shit. But I don't know. That would have been too much, maybe. But I do like this opening montage. Uh, I joked about it in the plot summary, but I do like the montage of Time Magazine covers and how the news figures out that, like, these were the things that destroyed the dinosaurs. And what the coolest little wrinkle 
wrinkle that I thought they added to dragon lore is the idea that dragons eat ash. So that's why they're always burning everything down. It's, it creates their food supply. And I thought that was a nice twist to everything. If we want to understand, that was something in the original script that got sold in the mid-90s before they, they you know, uh, punched it up for this. And I, I thought that was a smart move. I mean, that's that's something you don't hear about from dragons often, or I at least had never heard it in any other thing. And I mean, dragon tales are as old as forever, right? I mean, I, I grew up with Puff the Magic Dragon like everybody else in my generation. So, you know, I've known about dragons forever, I think. And to to know the fact that though, that's how they survive, it's kind of cool. If only Quinn had tried to train them instead, then we would have had a heartwarming film in, <laughs> instead of this. Um, no, I am with you, Jay. I love that opening montage. One thing I, one scene I really wanted out of this movie was a big scene and, and it would have cost more than the budget they had. But you know, the scene in Independence Day at the very end when all the F-18s are lined up and they all fire missiles at the same time at the, the I would have loved to have had that exact same shot, but all the missiles going to like an army of dragons. I just think that would have been a badass shot and you could have done it in that montage just to show how you know, we fired everything we got at the dragons and they were like, meh, fuck off. And, and, you know, I just think it would have set the stakes a little higher. Again, modest movie. They're not aiming for those stakes, but I thought it would have been cool to have that. You, you could have at least worked it in like in pictures in the montage. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have gotten some like, you know, like uh, that, that shot of Vietnam where there's that little girl who's covered in napalm and she's like uh, crying and naked and and wandering away from the village after she got bombed. You, you could have like worked something in like that. Uh, give it some, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, it's the end of the world and we see lots of destroyed like buildings and Paris is burning and all that stuff. But like, I, I would have, I could have gone for some more human carnage, uh, especially like in that opening montage. They do drop the whole bit about how the world leaders nuked everything as sort of a last resort because that's always the answer, right? When it's done, let's just screw it all up so nobody wants to live in it. And the dragons are very much like, eh, you know, <laughs> they don't seem to really care or mind. But yeah, it's uh, I, the the fall of society uh, through the montages. It's well done. It sets up the world that we need it to set up where we're ultimately going to wind up with these castle dwellers. And we get Quinn as the older, you know, Christian Bale coming in here. And I, I got to say, I, I've seen Christian Bale in a lot of movies and play a lot of different stuff. And there are times when he's almost too much with the intensity. Like they've just, turn the dial just a little past eight and it should have been maybe a six. And that I feel like somewhere in the midst of the production, they dialed him back and made him much more interesting. Mike, you called it out early on. He is kind of a dick when we first meet him and he's got a reason to be a dick, but you haven't established him enough to know that he's right yet. And I know this movie again, is kind of lean and fast, but it, it doesn't give us anything to let us know that he is right about his assumptions and that that one guy that wants to go out and pick from the harvest with his family or whatever needs to listen to what he's having to say. Well, it's a problem with a lot of movies that I see, which is, you know, we need to, but Quinn is ostensibly the leader of, of this group of people. And, they don't really establish why anybody would follow him. Like, we are fine with it because he's Christian Bale. We would follow him anywhere, you know. And his best friend's Gerard Butler at literally his, possibly his most charming. I mean, he's delightful in this movie. And so, um, you know, it's okay for us, but just from a movie standpoint, it is kind of like, okay, why are we following this guy? Um, and you're kind of right, Jay, about the like, the intensity because it does almost feel like, he and McConaughey, and we'll obviously talk a lot more about McConaughey, but it almost feels like they're kind of in two separate movies because Bale is very much his Christian Bale intensity. I'm Batman, you know, and McConaughey's just whatever the hell he's doing in this movie. Um, and so there is, there is a bit of a clash. I feel like the third act, they come together much more and, and gives us both a more restrained McConaughey and a little lighter Bale. Uh, but the first part of the movie, the some of the performances are a bit clunky. As much as I think Bale does a good job in this, you're right in that they don't give him a ton of background. 
I think the thing that endears him most to me is when he and Creedy do that Empire Strikes Back reenactment for the kids. It's just basically, this is what we can remember about this movie that no longer exists. And so we're going to do it for the kids. And I, I don't know. I thought that was cute. It was fun. And I, it was, it gave them the, that humanized element that even in the midst of basically living in the dark and living in incredible fear at all times for their lives, and for good reason, because they know what's outside the walls, they still find time to entertain the children and to try to keep them you know, sane. And then they have their little prayer moment with them, which is basically, yeah, I'm going to keep water at my side. I'm going to keep one eye open. And if I see one, I'm not looking back. I'm running in the other direction. And it's supposed to set up how much opposite Quinn and Creedy and that group are from Van Zandt when they roll in eventually. It, it, it really brought to mind to me it made me think a lot about um, uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It made me think of that tribe of feral children. And, like, this is what happened to, to that tribe just before, like, the last two adults died. Is that they were passing down these stories and doing these playlets and stuff. And they had their chant. They had their prayer. They had their, uh, you know, their slideshow about uh, Tomorrow Morrowland and uh, the long, long ago. Well, you know, I, I hear you, though. There's definitely a Mad Max influence on the production elements and the aesthetics of this movie in a lot of ways. I feel like Mad Max ended up being what kind of codified the this is a dystopian future look for movies for until now, basically, because you see it all the time. But this movie, for whatever reason, feels especially Mad Maxian in terms of its you know, character design and, and uh, set dressing and stuff. Maybe it's the fact that they're in, like, a castle slash petroleum uh, factory. I'm not sure what all those pipes and tubes are for mm. with the castle, but they were clearly doing some sort of industrial work. <clears throat> well, and you definitely have, uh, I think, yeah, you know, it had Mad Max taking place in... Scotland or England or wherever they are, um, as opposed to Australia, it kind of probably would have looked something like this. And you sort of have a little bit of a Mad Max type character with Quinn because, you know, the thing with Max is he does pretty heroic things, but that's always the last resort, right? He most of the time just doesn't want to get involved. And Quinn is very protective of his adopted family here. But other than that, he doesn't want to get involved. He wants no contact with the outside world. He does not want Van Zandt coming in. He does not want people getting hope and optimism and wanting to fight back or get away or do anything like that. He He's really very much a... a you stay alive, and every day that you stay alive, that's a win. But that's the only win. The only win is you survive. Uh, there's nothing else to look forward to, which is a very Mad Max kind of uh, kind of thing. Yeah, and you see it when that one family is getting attacked because they're out in the fields when they're not supposed to be, and they run out with the fire trucks. Basically, they've got the whole fire brigade. Their way of combating them is we're just going to dump enough water that we can kind of get out of the way and then get you know the survivors out and let them have the rest of it. You know, And they, they just watch their crop literally go up in flames in front of them. Maybe that's one of the things that Christian Bale gained from his uh, exposure to the dragon fire is that he's got like a plus fire resistance to flames, which is why he, all he has to do is put on that tinfoil suit and he can just run through any fire that they've got in the movie. <laughs> that was very much out of like a 70s disaster movie too, like Airplane 77 or something, right? Like that or, or that, that suit. Uh, was... Or that Howie Long movie where he's a firefighter. Yes, one of those. Yeah, any any of that kind of stuff. I, I did enjoy that though because it's a good action scene. Because they got to give us one before they roll in the, I I guess you would call it the shot of adrenaline into this kind of drama about dragons at this point for the first act until Matthew McConaughey rolls himself down that little road and in his cut off bomber jacket, Triple H tattooed, bald head. He's supposed to be from Kentucky. He definitely doesn't sound like he's from Kentucky. Ron, you know this. Please weigh in. It is. Uh, it is quite an entrance when this man and his cavalry roll into this plot. Yeah, the uh, the so-called Kentucky Irregulars. Um, I don't know how somebody who's clearly the most Texas man who's ever lived got to be in charge of the Kentucky Irregulars. Maybe there weren't enough Texans left 
for the Texas Irregulars, so they kind of had to draft him over. But yeah, even his name like makes me think of like Towns Van Zant, who I really associate with, you know, like that uh, alt country like Texas movement, like Austin City Limits type of stuff. Um, so yeah, and he he definitely doesn't sound like anybody from Kentucky I've, I've ever met, and I've been all over the state. <laughs> It's hard to beat his entrance, though. I mean, he's he's so, you know, say what you will about McConaughey. And this is, you know, this is, you you mentioned uh, this was kind of his Kate, you know, Kate Hudson era. He actually did that the year after. But he's coming off of Frailty, which is by far and away one of his best performances and one of his best movies. Um, you know, and he'd just done a couple years earlier U571. So it's not like his career this is the start of his career starting to go down uh before we get the reconnaissance not not <laughs> in the middle of it you know and so he's still he's he's filling his oats and it shows in this movie you know and i mean i think all the characters are pretty realistic and pretty well written he gets some really rough dialogue you know he gets the uh by vision their day or by day their vision is incredible by night it's even better but at dusk the fading light they can't see you know and he just he, he like he's got to deliver those lines in such a way that it's like how do you do that straight you don't and so he chooses not to go straight with it he goes over the top and i i i'm not gonna lie i i love him in this movie i think he's one of the most entertaining parts of it but i could totally understand other people not liking his performance in this at all because it's a lot of performance oh listen it is a huge industrial size can of ham shoved into this movie but without it this movie would be dull <laughs> let's just say it this guy is like what the rock was to the fast and furious franchise just a shot right in the testicles when it needed it and that's what this guy is in this and he's got this whole group of people he's from kentucky you know we'll use that loosely i don't know what country um isabella's Skarupko is supposed to be playing from, but that accent is sliding and slipping like those tires on that road, man. Like they, she, at some point, she just gave up and was like, "Fine, I'll just do the Golden Eye accent again, where I'm sort of Russian because I'm from Warsaw, you know." And so she's all over the place. The rest of his people are again. You got the the archangels. They call them these guys who dive through the clouds out of a helicopter to get a dragon to chase them, so they can throw a net around it, and that's how they bring it down before they shoot it. And their average life expectancy see is 20 seconds or some nonsense i mean it's you, you introduce like uh, you start this movie with all this big deep drama the world is ending and this one boy kind of causes it all and he's trying to survive and keep these people alive and then on the other hand then you bring in the wwe like right in the middle of it to throw down extreme rules right in the middle of this thing and like the first thing you know when they roll up and he and christian bale have that great scene at the gate and I love McConaughey's line. It's just like, we can do this the easy way or the real easy way. <laughs> and the real easy way is I'm about to unload this tank on you. I still am a little fuzzy on how they got from where they were to where they are, but I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, my question is, how did the Kentucky Irregulars get a hold of a British tank? I mean, maybe they just found it. Did they just find it abandoned at the airport? Is that what we're to believe? Because none of that equipment that they're riding around in, except for one Humvee, is is American. Like, that is legit yeah. like a British, 1970s British tank. They talk about how their plane got shot down, and that's what gives Quinn that pause. He's like, they ain't been nothing in the air in 20 years, because that's their part. You know, and he talks about how it went down. I assume, like you did, Rod, that they, they found most of it when they got there abandoned and it's in pretty darn good shape for you know 20 years of just sitting out there i was like hey that's that's pretty good looking stuff you guys have shined that up pretty good they also have an unlimited supply of fuel in this movie which i would think that would be the first thing that kind of went when the dragons lit everything on the fire the petroleum reserves would be gone like this that that's a little bit of a plot problem and, and it's not like diesel keeps forever either you've got like six months eight months before it starts to go bad i mean even like the the A1 fuel that they'll need for that helicopter, that that for sure has already started to go bad. 
All right, so here's what it is. They have figured out that if you collect the ash that the dragons burn, it leaves a residue from the the secretions that they use to light stuff on fire. So you compress the ash and actually create a burnable fuel that can power all of your vehicles. There you go. Solve the problem for you, boys. That's why you have me on the show. I I, I am sitting here going like, is that in the movie? Because damn, it should be. That would have been genius. That's two lines and we had that done. That, that could have been them... All those pipes they had that you talked about, Ron, they could have been talking about that's how we keep this place lit, idiots. You know, it's with all that stuff. But yeah, that it it's a little bit of a thing. You kinda again, kinda like if you introduce the WWE into your storyline, you're just gonna have to let it happen or not. Um, but we we get Van Zandt and his crew into the fight very quickly because here comes a dragon and we realize very quickly that like while they have a plan, it's not exactly the most sound of plans. And immediately we also set up that Quinn can be a hero when he has to be. Cause the one motorcycle guy that's riding around with the uh, Tiki torch that's supposed to be part of the radar or what the hell ever uh, goes down and Quinn grabs it and runs it up there on a horse. And that's what gives them a, a shot at the at the dragon. So I, I don't know. I like that whole sequence. I like the way that the fight goes down. And at the end, how McConaughey's the one that brings it down with that big friggin' harpoon thing, right? As Christian Bale's riding over the sunset with that horse. It's pretty cool. It's a good action sequence. Well, and it immediately, like you said, Jay, it immediately establishes that Quinn, whether he wants to be or not, is a hero, right? Mm-hmm. Quinn is going to be the integral part of this movie. You know, McConaughey gets, you mentioned the rock in the fast and furious movies and he's great in those, but at the end of the day, it's Vin Diesel and Paul Walker that are what those movies are about. And this is kind of the same thing. Quinn is the protagonist of the story. Um, And so it really does establish that so that we can buy it when we get farther on in the movie, that he's not just an angry, angsty pud. He's actually a guy that can, can get stuff done. So I think it, it's a it's an exciting action scene. I think their plan is terrible. I I cannot believe this is their plan for fighting back against dragons. But uh it's an exciting action scene and it really does what it needs to to establish Quinn as as the main character in the movie. Well, you know what they're planning in the ground, don't you, Jay? You might remember oh. it. You might remember it from a little movie called Dune. They're oh. planning the the thumpers into the ground to attract the worm. It's an excellent callback. I had not thought about that, but you're exactly right. That is, oh, that's great. And also, would watch Worms versus Dragons. Would 100% watch Worms versus Dragons. Might well, I recommend the Tremors series too? I was going to so. say, yeah. Once you get to like Tremors four, they're flying, or Tremors three, they're flying around. See, the, least, it's when the it's when the Tremors start flying and going to outer space that I have to walk on the series. But those first two, watchable uh, kind of movie, especially that first one. That first one's great. Uh, but I, I, lo- I love the the fun of how everybody in that little village, right, is just celebrating, partying like it's 1999. We're playing some damn Jimi Hendrix. We're going to have some fun, you know, because we killed a dragon. Woohoo! And Van Zant becomes the angsty bitch of the movie all of a sudden because he's like, it's one dragon. Yeah, I lost 10 people. Y'all think that's a good thing? Can you feel me? You know, and he starts doing all that kind of stuff in the castle. And I'm like, wow, did you guys like swap scripts for half a minute there? Because it's... It's funny to watch Matthew McConaughey get get all pissed. He does have that great line, though, where he's like, envy the country that has heroes, huh? And pity the country that needs them. I mean, again, that is a terrible line to have to deliver. And he is all in on that fucking line. He is given that everything he's got that is everything that he has ever wanted to say in a line he gets it out in that one that's what i'm telling you man it's texas chainsaw massacre next generation level mcconaughey in this that movie is chock full of shitty dialogue too and he delivers it with as much aplomb as he does here and it's it's it's, it's the first thing i thought of watching it i was like so clearly mcconaughey in his trailer's like so i'm 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 gonna do the texas chainsaw thing on this y'all all right with that and probably no one there understood a word he said. It's like, sure. You know, and they just went with it. And I'm sure somewhere Bale is in the back screaming at a PA going, what the f- 
fuck is this guy doing? You know, or whatever. But I mean, you can see that happening. But uh, it, it's just funny to watch uh, watch him spit out this ridiculous dialogue. But the uh, the best part of it is when McConaughey gets mad. He does this in a Time to Kill. He does this in every damn movie he's got, where his eyes well up with these big old southern tears. You know, it's just it, you saw it last year if you watched college football when Joe Burrow smoked his team on national TV. He had the same tears in his eyes. It's just how this guy looks when he gets upset. But I love the the way that Quinn goes after him, too, because he's up there, he's buried his people and all this, and Quinn goes at him and says, I buried hundreds of people here before you ever got here, so trust me, I understand loss. We're having our Max Katie moment. We're there. We, we are in loss together, my friend, and you need to to chill a little bit. And I, I love how that, that's the first time we see Quinn really stand up to someone. And again, it's like you say, Mike, you know he's a hero, and he's just sort of starting to shed the skin to get there. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey rolls up and he's like, dragons are a flat circle. And then Christian Bales <laughs> takes him out back and is like, me and you, we're done professionally. <laughs> Did you guys see, I don't know if you had checked the IMDb trivia, but apparently, uh, so Alexander Siddig, we didn't mention, is also in this. He's got a small role uh, from Deep Space Nine. But apparently he gave an interview years ago where he said the only thing he remembered is that like, some PA came in and said, McConaughey is demanding that everybody refers to him as Van Zant. <laughs> On set, you refer to him as Van Zant. Uh, if you see him at a restaurant, because I guess they filmed it outside Dublin, if you see him at a restaurant in Dublin, you refer to him as Van Zant. And I'm just sitting here going, how did that go over when they told Bale that? <laughs> because <laughs> I can only imagine Bale being like, Oi, no, he refers to me as Quinn. All right, you'll all fucking only refer to me as Quinn. <laughs> yes, it's method acting on top of method acting. And somewhere Rob Bowman's going, it's a, it's a fucking $60 million dragon movie, guys. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Poor Isabella Scarruf goes over there going like, I was in a Bond movie. It was a good one. It's one of the good ones. So seven years ago. Does anybody remember this? No, none of you remember me, but. You know, here I am again. Boy, that boy, talk about a character that's a thankless role and has only given something to do in the last third of the movie. That was a character that I felt like half of whatever she was supposed to be got left on the floor somewhere for expediency's sake. Anybody else feel like that? Yeah, she's uh, this. There's definitely like a two and a half hour cut of this movie somewhere where you get into her backstory and we we learn all about how Matthew McConaughey's dragon fighting technique of throwing. Picking one guy at random and letting him be eaten while the other shoot at the dragon is supposed to work, but yeah, I feel I feel like they left left a bunch of her on the on the cutting room floor. She really had a one two punch of just movies that I have affinity for, but that did not treat her well because just before this, she did Vertical Limit. It was the same thing. You feel like you know, and and Vertical, I I will. Are you? This is actually a pretty good movie. Vertical Limit is not. I just have affection for it for a variety of stupid reasons. Um, but both movies just treat her really poorly as a character, and and she's I think pretty terrific in both of them. She was great in Golden Eye. I think she's a phenomenal actress. She's w incredibly beautiful. So it's like you couldn't figure out how better to use her than just as like a side character uh, between a bunch of dudes you know, whipping it out and measuring. Cause that's literally all she does in this movie is she's got to be like, uh, Van Zant Quinn, you know, which one is bigger? Like that's literally the role she serves in this movie. It's, it's not, it's not good. And I, I do feel bad cause I feel like she should have had a much bigger career. And I feel like this is vertical limits. She could have recovered from, but this one was kind of the nail in the coffin for her Hollywood career. I feel like I, th I think you're exactly right. But if, if you give her a little bit more, or if you let that be in the movie, she becomes furiosa from Fury Road to call back to our Mad Max, which I would have been okay with. And I think that's what makes Fury Road work so well. It's because Max is what he's supposed to be, the side thing and the, the world that it lives in. <clears throat> and then all the other people 
make the action go forward. She she definitely could have done more. She does well with what she's given. It's just not a lot, and that's the sad part here. I do love, though, when Van Zandt is out doing his recruiting the next morning, and Quinn comes out, and they have a fight, and it's very They Live. Um, I'm, I'm often one to compliment movies where adult men fight, and it looks like adult men would fight when they're in their 30s. They don't, they don't go at each other like Rocky and Drago for 30 minutes. They punch and claw and scratch and kick and pull and yell and scream and cuss a lot and then the one that gets his ass kicked is usually the one still talking trash and that was Christian Bale at the end of this yeah that's a really good point about the fight scene that the fight scene is, is a lot of fun uh, to watch and I guarantee I guarantee you they got a lot of their uh, I, there's no way those two got along I don't see how so I think they were able to get a lot of their frustration uh, with one another on the screen and if these two get along and are best friends I would be incredibly surprised because they I don't see two people who could be more different in terms of their approach to what they do and how they do it. Yeah, no, you kind of get the sense that everybody on set wanted to hang out with Gerard Butler. Oh, yeah. Like, like that's the guy that everybody was hanging out with. He was cool. Um, I mean, he was so, you called it out. He's so charismatic. This is right after his failed law career, and he's just getting into acting. And, I mean, you talk about this guy, just, he has all the charisma in the world. You can see why people realize we need to put that guy in stuff after this, because he's got so much charisma. Yeah, I mean, he goes right from this into Laura Croft, Cradle of Life, which he just owns that movie. I mean, he owns every second of that movie. And, you know, that's not easy to do when you're co-starring against uh, co-starring with Angelina Jolie. And he still manages to walk away with that movie. So it was definitely a, uh, you know, a kind of a, a an arrival party for him. And uh, and it shows it shows he's, he's just delightful in this movie. And it's always fun to hear him speak in his natural accent. Uh, that that's a lot of fun for me because it's like, hey, there's uh, there's American Mike Banning, but he doesn't sound <laughs> like Mike. Exactly, it's perfect to watch it. But of course, the other thing I know because he is so affable, he's so likable, and he's so important to Quinn. I immediately, again, having not remembered the middle of this movie, marked him as dead meat. And I was like, he's going to die at a very pivotal moment in this movie. I'm just waiting for when that's going to happen. And I got to say, the thing about this movie, that these kind of movies usually start really well, and then they kind of end on a thud for the most part. This one reverses that. It kind of starts in a eh, interesting place and then gets really weird for a little while. And then it starts picking up. And when Van Zandt takes that group of people to go and make the raid on the male dragon in London... I I love how quickly the tension and everything in this movie ratchets up because the man dragon, and I've called him Evil Puff because I just need a name for this dragon. When Evil Puff decides to wipe out everyone, it's not much of a fight. He waxes all of Van Zandt's military, melts down all their stuff, and then goes straight to that castle and huffs and puffs and blows it down. I mean, it's a great sequence. Well, and I mean, it's one of the two big money shots of the movie. You know, the the other money shot is the the most famous one we'll talk about when we get to it. But, it, you know, that scene of the convoy and the dragon spreading its wings and just blowing the shit out of the convoy is just, I mean, that's your, that's your YouTube thumbnail shot right there, right? Like, that thing is, it, it's immaculately put together. It's immaculately constructed. The colors are dynamic. It, it really, and it really does change the course of the movie because the result of that is we get a much different Van Zandt too. He's much more humble, much more. It's almost like McConaughey decided, Oh, here's where I actually get to act for the rest of the movie. You know, I, I get to do some real acting now Um because he, he just, it, it is the third act of this movie, which I would say basically starts with when they leave the castle it's pretty terrific. I think that's probably the reason I have a lot of affection for the movie is I think it ends strong. Yeah, this is when I start to come around on the movie, too, and I start to get into it a little bit because, I mean, I enjoy uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation, more than most people should. And I enjoy Matthew McConaughey when he goes full tilt boogie into his his quasi Nicolas Cage craziness. But after he's like after he comes back broken and he's like, he goes to Quinn and he says, you were right. I was wrong. It's like, all right, this is a completely different character. 
and this is a completely different personality. He's lost that kind of brash, over-the-top Matthew McConaughey-ness, and now it's like, oh, he's actually a, a real actor, too, which was kind of a, you know, kind of a big surprise in 2002, because at that point, I think I'd only seen him do, like, crazy things or in frailty, uh, where he is also still kind of over the top, but, you know. I think the thing about him that, that sells it is when he, when Alex comes down and pulls him out from underneath that tank and he asks her where everybody is and she's like, everybody what? And you see him pick up the ashes of what used to be his friends, his crew. And he's just sort of like letting it run through his fingers. It's like, he realizes like, well, we're dead. So we might as well go back and at least try to save those poor people that gave us some food because I screwed them desperately because he knows exactly where that dragon's going. He has that great moment where he looks at her and goes, the castle. And it's almost like the dragon realized, which direction did y'all come from again? Oh, those people. Okay. <laughs> well, it's time to go pay a visit. And what the cool thing about these dragons that I love is that they're rattered and tattered. Like they've got holes in their wings and shit and they cuz they're malnourished. Like they talk about how because everybody's gone into hiding and they've pretty well killed everything that there's not enough to eat to keep them alive or to keep them strong, but still in their weakened condition and 75% evil puff is still pretty badass and can cover a lot of distance really fast. And when he plops down in front of that castle and just unloads on it, that's a, that's an unreal shot. And for 2002, again, looks, it looks just as good as anything Game of Thrones did in its final season. I would put it up right up next to it and on similar budgets too. Yeah. And I mean, it, it adequately conveys the, you know, I have a serious phobia of my house burning down. And so, like, that castle getting burned and, and everything, everybody getting trapped. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. That gets under my skin. Like, that's an effective scene. And this is why I, I say, you know, I really do think we need to let Rob Bowman direct another movie. I know he's been very successful in TV shows. But, like, he's doing some terrific work here. He's, he with, again, not very much budget, obviously having to wrangle some major egos and and so the fact that we get you know this movie may or may not be to everybody's forte but you i i think you can fairly say it is not a disaster by any means and there's some really effective stuff in it and i i can i attribute a lot of that to rob bowman um he he really when he brings out the big guns he knows how to make the scenes that need to work work in this movie so we've talked about the convenience of the fact that Quinn is the kid that basically discovered the dragons again and started this whole thing. Is it too much that the big male dragon, Evil Puff, is that same dragon that killed his mother and all that stuff? That it's the, it's the same shark come back for the Brodies again. Is it is it too much for that? I don't think so. It, it, it worked for me mostly because that is that the dragon has established its territory. So when you think of, of pride animals like lions or whatever, which is, this is works very similarly to pride of lions because it's all females and one dominant male. Uh, you see a lot right down to the infanticide that we see later when the dragon is eating the baby dragon uh, because it's starving. But yeah, you see a lot of, um, you see a lot of that behavior in the animal kingdom. So it kind of makes sense that, He's picked out his spot. He's got a nice tall, you know, tower upon which to lord over the ruins. Uh, it's a good thing that the the gherkin wasn't around because he would have been on top of the gherkin. Um, <laughs> but I mean, they were still building the DLR at this point, so <laughs> it's it, it was quite a different London back even back then in two thousand two than it is now. Um, but yeah, that uh, that didn't bother me at all because it's like, well, where else is the king of dragons going to be? But like. The only thing that would have been more on the nose if he would have been in Buckingham Palace, like just like lording over the crown jewels or at the Tower of London. <laughs> he did fly over Big Ben a couple times, to be fair. Well, and it, it didn't bother me because it had to be that dragon, right? Because the reason we're following Quinn as the protagonist of the story, you know. A lot of times people complain about this is coincidental or that's coincidental or whatever, but 
sometimes what people think is coincidental is just story construction. We're following Quinn because he is the character that woke up the dragon. And so the fact that I do think it's a little, you know, coincidental that, but it, to start, it's a little coincidental, but on the flip side, it isn't to me coincidental that it's the male dragon that he woke up. Of course it's the male dragon though. The male dragon has to come first, right? And so that's the one that he woke up and that's why we're following Quinn. If we're following, you know, Joe from Albuquerque and he's the one that woke up the dragon in London, that would be crazy. But we're following the guy who is 40 miles away from London, um, who's the protagonist of the story. So it didn't bother me at all. I actually thought it made sense because, Quinn's the only one that knows where the dragon is. I mean, because he woke him up, so he knows where he is. The other thing that the third act of this movie does is it decides it wants to finally be fun and have fun. And they get that great joke in there about like, well, this town's gone to hell, you know, and all the dragons are flying over. And you can tell everybody's having a lot more fun with this than they were. And what I love about it is that this final battle isn't some prolonged 50-minute thing. It's actually pretty fast, the way that it all goes down. And Van Zandt is the one that gives Quinn the big pep talk before he climbs the tower and goes down in one of the most insane blazes of glory I've ever seen a character go down in this movie. I think, Mike, this is what you're referring to as the other huge money shot in this movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is the, you know, I don't know if you guys remember the trailers for this, but this was the shot that was in the trailers. I mean, it's what got the handful of people that actually saw this movie into the theater. And and I love it because, again, it's Van Zant being all badass, and the end result is he gets gobbled. <laughs> you know, like, he's trying to go out in a blaze of glory, and Dragon's just like, nope, chomp. Um, and so it's like... Everything about his character has been just this overarching bravado and it ends up with him getting munched. I, I think it's 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 a really great looking scene and I really do love the way it's just kind of like, oh, shit, that is not how I saw that going. Yeah, that was a, a, a nice surprise to, to watch him, you know, get get his, so to speak. Uh, not that he deserved to die, but, you know, it makes sense that he died and it makes sense that. He died doing something crazy because it's pretty well established throughout the movie that he's a little off <laughs> and, and, you know, he's a little sat Brannigan-y and that there's no problem. He won't throw wave after wave of his own man at uh, just based on their whole dragon hunting strategy is of being, you know, all right, you go that way and try not to get eaten and we'll we'll wait here to, and jump the thing. Um <laughs> uh, so it, it naturally makes sense that at a certain point he would be like, all right, I guess it's my turn now. And then he leaps off the building with an axe to try to cleave a dragon out of midair. Well, the thing he does, though, before, guys, and, and I can't prove it, but I bet you Rob Bowman is a fan of some of the scenes of Jaws 3 because he does a Jaws 3. He does a Simon McCorkendale, Philip Fitzroyce thing to this dragon before he goes at it with the axe. He shoots his crossbow with his Rambo explosives on it, and he hits the dragon in the side of the mouth, so it kind of malfunctions one of the glands, so it doesn't have full fire for a little bit. Like he, you know, And it gives him the, the opening to where I'm going to jump off at this thing, and if I don't kill it it'll it'll get me but it'll probably bring it down too because it's clearly going down when it when it comes and snatches him out of the sky there and you see the end of the dragon is it's walking around and it's kind of having to double husk to try to spit that fire back out and it gets a good flame going and then it kind of malfunctions because he hit it in the side of the neck with that one thing so i i i kind of felt like that was the the hey guys it'll work if you hit it dead center i missed it so you go pull the pin on the other grenade to finish the jaws three metaphor yeah, and I don't want it to make it sound like I don't think he's integral to the to the climax because he is for sure. Um, you know, Quinn ends up firing the final shot, and uh, Quinn really needed to say, "Smile, you son of a bitch." But alas, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, and and I mean, it, it's definitely an important scene. Did you guys? After he hits, did you feel like the final shot? I remember in the theater very clearly, but I did. It wasn't as noticeable to me this time that. It looked like the dragon recognized Quinn as well. You know, like, mm -hmm. oh, you're the dude that woke me up. I remember, oh, shit, you just blew me up. You know, like, I just, I don't know. I got, it's not as obvious as I remember it being when I saw it in the theater. Because when I saw it in the theater, I was like, oh, yeah, there's 
way too much like metaphor going on there with that. But uh, I don't know. Did you guys recognize that? The the thing that got me about it, Mike, was when he when he's climbing up that ladder and he has the flashback to when his mother died. I was like, we didn't we didn't need that. I bet you somebody somebody at the studio said reinsert that shot there, and that didn't need to be there. I think you you were we were there with it at that point anyway. And the, you know the other way you could read it is that Evil Puff is like, hey bro, where you been? <laughs> Thanks for shooting me. I don't know. Maybe that's not what it was, but you know dragons are fierce. They don't know how to look cute so but yeah no i i did get the sense that it did look at him like oh it's you okay this is how we're gonna do this maybe dragons have a very strong sense memory uh to make up for their their mediocre dusk vision I mean, it does give him a look like the bad guy at the end of uh, what Fistful of Dollars gives uh, Clint Eastwood when he realizes he shot him and he's just shot him in the boiler plate six times and didn't have anything left to do. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to try to get you first. And he clearly does it. Because it, it, that's one thing about this is you would expect this to be some big wooda, you know, and McConaughey kind of gets the big huzzah moment here. The final fight is pretty simple but you know christian bale runs and grabs an arrow uh alex runs across shooting a machine gun at the dragon for reasons because that pisses it off or something and then he he you know ducks behind a car that gets lit up and then comes back around it and boom that's it i mean it's pretty fast yeah i don't know why she thought two two three would make a dent in a dragon when that that mauser uh rifle that uh christian bale's got is chambered for like five seven seven elephant round so i mean if it's shaking off elephant gun you, you're you're uh you could unload a whole magazine of 223 at it and it's not even gonna bother it maybe it was just the minimal <clears throat> distraction to give him time to line up the rocket shot i mean that's all i could think of that was supposed to be well and as we know from rambo arrows are far more effective than any bullet that's ever been created anyway so yes. i mean it, yes. it just it, it works you know it, it's fine Especially the explosive arrow, like we have the explosive crossbow, we have to have that. But you know, it's a good, it's a good death and ending. And what I like is that the dragon doesn't ev- evaporate. You know, it's it blows itself up, sure, but it's still kind of laying there at the end. And you have to, they have to walk up on it. Like, is it really dead? It's it's really dead, right? Okay. Whew. You know, and I, I did get a kick out of that though, because again, a lesser movie would have been like evaporation into the sun, you know, and then the, then the clouds would have parted and it would have rained and everybody would have been happy or something. But they don't do that here. Uh, we do go back though, and I don't I don't know how much time has passed, but we didn't talk about it much. There's this kid that Quinn has kind of adopted. And who has now been left in charge of the colony, and Quinn is very fine to just hand over the reins to him so he can, you know, hang out with Alex up on the hill and put up a radio tower. Yeah, they don't say exactly how much time has passed since the killing of the male dragon, but they do mention it had been three months since they last saw a female. And since the their dragons were to the point where they were eating each other for sustenance, I, I imagine it didn't take that long for the population to die out. At least in England. I mean, who knows what's happening in Germany? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's probably fair. It's been at least less than a year, I would think. Um, you know, a few months. So, and then whatever's happening, Quinn doesn't care. He's in England. He doesn't care about Germans. He just cares about his family. Yeah. He's very Dom Toretto that way. <laughs> just all he all, needs all, is a Corona. <laughs> Yes, a grill and a Corona and a prayer, you know, and then we would add it at the end. But we almost get that. I mean, we get that we're talking to some French people about wine or something, and then he and Alex are hand in hand. The only thing they didn't do to poor Alex was, you know, give her the eight-month bump so that we knew that, you know, he was starting a family. At least they didn't do that to the poor, you know, character. But, they, you know, you kind of knew they were going to wind up together. But that's how the movie ends, and it, it winds up over the hill and, you know, it's, uh, to be continued, and then it never was. And so before we do final thoughts and everything, guys, I want to ask you, though, wh- why do you think this movie didn't land with audiences in 2002? Now, yeah, it made money, but it was considered a box office you know, failure, and it's 49% on Rotten Tomatoes, stuff like that. What do you think it missed? I don't remember the trailers being super effective at selling the movie to me, uh, at least when what I remember of them. I, I think it was a movie that... that had a bad trailer and I think the concept is just a little too uh, I think any post-apocalyptic movie is a hard sell unless you've got a specific hook 
for it, and they can't just show you the dragon in the trailer. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a zombie movie where you can... It's not like, for example, 28 Days Later, which came out about this time, and even has a similar ending to this. You know, with 28 Days Later, you can just show Jim walking around in London and then fleeing from a horde of, of, of zombies with the rage virus. And, you know, you're not really giving anything away by showing him, like, being chased... Uh, but in this movie, you can't exactly, you know, uh, you can't exactly show Albie the racist dragon, like, in the trailer. you got to save something. I was also looking up, because I remembered going to go see it in the theater, and uh, I was trying to remember what came out around the same time. Part of the problem is it got swallowed up. I mean, the summer of 2002 really was the story of kind of three movies. You had Spider-Man in May... You had uh, episode two, Attack of the Clones, the end of May, then stretching into June. And then July, you had Men in Black 2, which is a movie that universally everybody dislikes, but made, you know, $441 million worldwide. Like, it was a huge hit. And it opened the week before this. And so I think it was just a a situation of... This is one of those movies that now I think the strategy to release it would be you don't release it in July when it's a $60 million dragon movie. You release it in February where it's going to get the the box office to its own. People are going to be jonesing for a special effects movie, you know, and it could it could play. It could have legs here. It just kind of got swallowed up um, by what I think is, frankly, a much worse movie. But nonetheless, um, it got swallowed up. Yeah, I would argue that if you go watch and look at the effects in Men in Black 2 or Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, they don't hold up nearly as good as the effects in this movie. And this is working on half, a third of the budget that those two had. So, you know, sometimes artistry just uh, wins out, but it takes a long time to do. So, well, guys, we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Rain of Fire? Mike? Um... I like this one, guys. I, I really like this movie. That's the reason I wanted to talk about it. I'm, I'm going to give it a large popcorn. I think there's a lot of fun to be had in here. And, uh, I think if people haven't seen it and they approach it with kind of the right mindset, I think there's, there's a good time to be had. So I'm, I'm, I'm pro this movie giving it a large popcorn. And I, Jay, am also going to give this movie a large popcorn. Uh, I had a lot more fun with it this time than I did the many times I watched it bits and pieces before. Maybe the problem was I didn't sit and watch the whole thing. But, uh, yeah, I had a really good time with this movie. It's uh, There's a lot of positive things to say for it, and it's, more importantly, it's a big, mostly dumb action movie that, that has a lot of cool special effects that they don't try to, they don't out, they don't try to outkick their coverage. They, they lay it in there, they say this is what we can do with one dragon so let's just do one dragon and we'll save the scene of like a hundred dragons we'll just show them way in the distance so we just have to do little Hitchcock the bird style animated shadows I gotta tell you everything about this movie screams a medium popcorn medium popcorn and not necessarily in a bad way but it's definitely that kind of premise except for the fact that you've got two actors who, for varying reasons, are giving it way more than it deserves. You've got supporting character actors who are also giving it a lot of fun. This movie is an hour and 45 minutes. Its fleet is all get out. And that third act, that third act resurrects this movie into a place that it's above what it really is. It makes it so much better than what you expect. And for that, it it's a fun ride. And you're right, Mike, it got swallowed up by two bigger franchises. But if they'd have thrown this thing out in February, I, I guarantee it would have done a lot more at the box office. And it's definitely something worth revisiting and worth your time. Because again, folks, when you start doing special effects movies and you put 20 years on them, well, that, can be a, that can be a long day to try to go back and look at that again. Uh, this one holds up just as well. It looks great. It's fun. Don't apply too much logic to it because it's got its own kind of internal small circle logic, but that works for it. So it's large popcorn for me as well. Three for three guys. And it's definitely one that I think people have forgotten about and is worth revisiting. And so I'm so glad we got to talk about it here. Mike, thanks again for coming on the show and for, for bringing a movie back that you know people have forgotten, but uh, definitely deserve to look at again. 
Thanks for having me. I uh, I really enjoyed talking about this. I was really happy to to do it. So um, thanks for having me. I uh, I I appreciated the opportunity to talk about this movie. And do tell folks how they can follow you and the Dana Buckler Show. Sure. So I am uh, at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow me at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd. Those are the two uh, social medias that I'm on the most. Um, if you want to follow Dana uh, and the show, you can find that at the Dana Buckler Show dot com. Uh, you can also find it on Twitter uh, at Dana Buckler Show, Instagram at Dana Buckler Show. Um, if you go to Dana's Twitter, which is Dana Buck- at Dana Buckler Show, he's got a link tree that links to, to all of his social media accounts. Uh, so Twitter's a great place to find us. Um, please check out the show if you have not. Uh, we are currently in the middle of doing a uh, retrospective, a deep dive retrospective on the Rambo franchise, which is why Rambo was on my brain when we were uh, talking about this movie. Uh, so please check that out. Ron, tell folks how they can follow you and what you're doing over at Den of Geek. Well, Jay, you can find me, as always, at Den of Geek. I will be pr- probably in the middle of my coverage pr- or preparing for my coverage for The Walking Dead uh, World Beyond because we're not going to get a Walking Dead Season 11 this year. Uh, and so I will probably be watching whatever AMC is going to continue to feed me because uh, – I enjoy things with that I can watch ahead of time on my own schedule, and AMC is very kind enough to give me screeners. So I will be doing whatever AMC tells me to do. Fun stuff. And, of course, folks, you can follow us, filmstrippodcast.com. That's where you can find links to the show, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you find podcasts. You'll find the show in our vast archive section that we have really added to here in 2020. We've added a ton of episodes and lots of new stuff for you to enjoy. Follow the show's social media on Twitter and Instagram at Filmstrip Pod and search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook if you want to follow us there. Please uh, share the show and leave us a positive review. We appreciate the support. So until next time, for Mike from the Dana Buckler Show and Ron, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.